Father, through the mystery of preaching and through the mouths of imperfect men and women, you deliver good news to refresh the hearts of others. And we ask, Lord, that that would be the the effect you would have tonight. You would refresh hearts tonight, Father. Putting us back in the place we once were, perhaps, where we long to be, with our first love and with our knowledge of you as our Savior and with our hope to serve you and please you. Not bothered with the, the, the mess of doing church, that is, of all of the activity that can get in the way of who we really are and what we are here to do. And that we would be refreshed, Father, in the knowledge that you are on your throne and that you rule the hearts and minds of those you call your children by faith. And that, Father, you will rule this world through your Son who will return in a day soon to come, and we long for that. And in the meantime, Father, we study. We study by the power of your Spirit. We study according to the, the Word of God given to us. And we ask, Father, that you would inform our hearts tonight on what we learn. Inform them of who we should be with it, how we should live by it, who we should speak to about it. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Last week, we ended sort of in the middle of something. If you were here with me last week or if you watched online, you may remember we were in an important moment. One for the Apostle Peter. He was making his public, personal confession in Christ as a result of Jesus asking, Who do you say that I am? And as he did that, remember, he set an example for all in the church who would follow after him. Moreover, though, as a result of his boldness, in that moment, the Lord confirmed Peter as the early leader in the church. And we were just getting into that last week, and time was not our friend. So I want to revisit what we were doing and pick up where we left off. In the moment that we're studying in chapter 16, verse 16, where we pick up today, the Lord grants Peter a very unique opportunity, a role that is different in some respects from what some would tell you. But it's incredibly important. And as we come back to that moment this morning, and we try to understand what Jesus is doing for Peter here and what it means for us, there is one other aspect of Peter's leadership in the church that I want to cover briefly because I know it's on your minds. It always is. People are always wondering about Peter's job at guarding the pearly gates. We know he does it. We hear about it all the time. People tell us all the time he's up there. And so I think it would be appropriate for me to just cover that briefly for a moment. There was a time when St. Peter was standing at the pearly gates doing his job when Bill Gates shows up. Work with me on this, please. And as he enters into heaven, Peter's going to show Bill where he's living. He shows him a small wooden cottage with black and white TV, a couple of bedrooms, a straw bed, not much. And as Bill is looking over his provision, he notices next to his home is this gigantic castle made of silver and gold. And so he turns to Peter and he says, Hey, how come that guy gets a castle and I get this little cottage? And Peter says, Well, that castle belongs to the builder of the Titanic. Which did not satisfy Bill at all. Bill looks back at Peter and says, Wait a minute, you're telling me that the man responsible for the greatest maritime disaster in modern history gets a better house than I do? To which Peter replies, Well, Bill, the Titanic only crashed once. Now, if you're new here, it doesn't get any better than that. Anyone who is here right now would affirm for you that that is not why they come to this church. Uh, but now that we've gotten that out of our system, let's get back to the story, the one that really matters, which is what Christ and Peter are talking about in Matthew 16. Now, I'm going to go back a couple of verses just to reset the context, and then we'll go forward. So we start in Matthew 16:16. 16, 16. Simon Peter answered, 
You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus said to him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. I also say to you that you are Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overpower it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall have been bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall have been loosed in heaven. That's the scene we've been in. Now, we went through a little of the beginning of it. We're going to pick up and move through the rest of it. But I want to seam these two together, which means going back just a little bit for a moment. Peter responded to Christ's question, stating emphatically that Jesus was the Christ, the Son of the God, the Living One, in literal Greek. And as we looked at that last week, we noticed that Jesus made three important statements to Peter in response to his confession. First, in verse 17, uh, Jesus said to Peter, that what he knew, what he had just stated, was not something that came to Peter by way of human agency. Or as Jesus says, by flesh and blood. Flesh and blood did not reveal the truth about Jesus to Peter. Jesus says flesh and blood, rather than a more conventional way of speaking, like, for example, people did not reveal this to you. Men or women did not reveal this to you. Why does he say flesh and blood? It is to emphasize that not even Peter's own flesh revealed this to himself. That is, no one taught Peter to know that Jesus was Lord, and neither did Peter's own mind arrive at that understanding on its own. That's what he's saying. Jesus said, no, here's where you found that out. You found that out because my Father in heaven revealed it to you. The action, the impetus being on the Father as the revealer, not on Peter as the seeker. In that situation. So if Peter is grasping the truth about Jesus, as he obviously is, it must be because the Father gave Peter that understanding. And as I said last week, that's how faith comes to every human being. Peter isn't being singled out here in the scripture because he was unique. On the contrary, Jesus calls Peter a model for the rest of us. That is, what happened to him is the way it works for everyone. In verse 18, In response to that, the second thing we see Jesus do is he renames Simon to the name Peter. And he says, thirdly, I will build my rock upon, or or my church rather, upon this rock, he says. And the gates of hell will not prevail against it. So let's begin to dissect that response. Now in this moment, Simon becomes forever known as Peter. Because up to this point, his name had been Simon Bar-Yona, which is Simon's son of Yonah. His new name, Peter, which we said last week means rock in Greek, which you probably knew. And if you wanted to get an English version of it, he's really being called Rocky as a pet name or a new name. That term, rock, Petros, in the way that it's used here in Greek, can be a rock of any size from about a pebble up to, say, a boulder. All right, It's, it's a rock, not necessarily a small one or a big one, just a rock. And Jesus makes a play on that word, rock, By then going on to say, upon this rock he will build his church. Now he's obviously making a comparison. That much is clear. He's making a comparison between his church and between Peter. Now the question though is, what is the connection he's making? What's the association? And the answer you get to that question will depend on who you ask. That is, if you ask someone who's part of the Catholic religion, they would tell you that Jesus simply meant Peter personally. That is, they would tell you that Peter himself is the rock upon which the church was built, because they would tell you, Jesus said, on this rock, meaning on Peter, I build this church. 
Now, from that interpretation, the Catholics would assert that Peter was the first pope. That's their logic. But friends, the text itself contradicts that interpretation. First, Jesus says he builds his church on this rock. You notice that he did not say, I build my church upon you, the rock. You. He says this. And more importantly, the word Matthew uses here for Peter's name, Petros, is a masculine Greek word, which means stone or rock. But the Greek word that he uses the second time for rock, that is the rock on which he'll establish his church, that is Petros. That is a feminine word, and it doesn't mean a stone like is a pebble or a boulder. It means a cliff or a mountainside, a Petros, a mountain. So the Greek grammar here does not support a comparison. It is not proper Greek to say, you are a rock Petros, and upon this rock Petros, I will build my church. Those are different rocks. By virtue of the Greek grammar, they are not the same rock. All right, so if if Peter is not literally the rock on which the church is being built, what is this rock upon which Jesus builds his church? But whatever it is, it must still be connected to Peter. Because Jesus has clearly made a connection here. He said, you're a rock, and I'm going to build a church on a rock. Well, he's saying something there. Some connection. And the connection is what Peter did. But not only what Peter did. The larger moment around what he did. Here's what I mean. You've often heard people tell you that the confession Peter made is the rock on which the church is built. That is a piece of it, yes. But remember what we just learned. Peter's confession did not start with Peter. So we can't start this rock on which the church is going to be built with anything Peter did either. We have to include everything that was involved in Peter's confession so that we can apply it to what will be true for the church at large. The Father started this process when he revealed himself to Peter. And then it was moved from there to the Son. The Son of God then invited Peter into a confession moment by asking him a question. And then as Peter responded in that public confession, he put the last link in a chain that had started earlier in heaven. So that process, the whole of it, everything that was involved there is not a rock Petros, as in pebble or boulder. It is a rock Petros, a cliff, a mountain on which God is working to build. And as Peter confessed, he became the first Petros, the first stone, in a massive Petros mountain or cliff of people who collectively would be a church. And when Jesus says, I will build my church, he's saying, what Peter just experienced from beginning to end is what I'm going to use to add Peter's on top of Peter's on top of them until I have a mountain, a cliff of the church. Living stones, as Peter later describes them in his letter. Jesus would build his church one disciple at a time, and every single one of them is going to enter into this new institution exactly the same way Peter did. And not just in what he said, but in all of the heavenly work that takes place behind the scenes to bring that person into faith. This is an important lesson. This is worth Jesus making a point of. Because in the minds of those disciples, and here's where you have to set yourself back about 2,000 years, And maybe even more importantly, you have to become Jewish here for just a moment. At least in your thinking. Because in the minds of these men, there had only ever been one way that a person could be part of the family of God. You had to be Jewish. And to be part of the Jewish nation, that meant you had to be born physically as a descendant of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. 
That's how it worked. You know, a Gentile could come along and find interest in the God Yahweh, and he could confess an interest in that and, and pledge his allegiance and his faith in, in the God of Abraham and Israel. And as such, that person would be considered a convert, but they would still be considered a proselyte, a God-fearing Gentile. They never got the title Jew. No one who converts to Judaism is a Jew. They are simply a Gentile who converts to Judaism. At least in terms of how it's actually understood from an Orthodox point of view. So, the Jewish people believed in their day that Jewishness was a prerequisite to salvation. Now, to be clear, the Jewish people do occupy a special place in God's plan. That is undeniable. But it's also true that no one who is born a Jew is saved simply because they were born a Jew. Right? That's also true. Eternal life only comes by faith in the promises of God. And the Jewish nation has always had some Jews who were saved by a faith, and there were many others who were not. Their Jewishness was incidental to whether they were saved or not. But as a nation, the Jewish people have a special role in God's economy. And we're not denying that to simply also say that faith is a requirement for salvation. But the Pharisees were teaching in Jesus' day that simply being born Jew was good enough to please God and to enter heaven. And they were also saying that if you were not born Jewish, God didn't love you, and it did not matter what you did, God ignored you. Gentiles were dogs. That bias is not compatible with the kingdom program. It's not compatible with the church. Jesus has to show these disciples that physical identity ain't going to matter in the church. The church is going to be built upon faith alone, a faith brought by the Father, confessed by those who believe in it, and that means anyone from any background can become part of the church body by faith. Now, we take that for granted. We have 2,000 years of history, and for the most part, none of us are Jewish, and so it never dawned on us to think that our physical background, our culture, our identity, and our parents had anything to do with getting to heaven. It never, never dreamed that, unless you were just one of those people who was born Christian, you know? My granddaddy was a Baptist, my daddy was a Baptist, I'm a Baptist, you know, that mindset, or a substitute Methodist or Protestant in any form. It's that attitude that says, I'm part of a chain of people and we're all good and we're all going to heaven because that's who we are. <laughs> Let me wake you up to that. That is not how it works. That's a Jewish version of, or a, a Protestant version of what Jews have been saying for centuries. God is not a respecter of persons. Alright? The Father in heaven has his plan for the church that he will invite people from every tribe, nation, and tongue to enter into this new institution, just as Scripture foretold that he would do. And it would come by means of a confession as a result of a revelation from a movement of God in the heart of the individual. That's why Jesus gave this new institution a new name. We touched on this just briefly last week. You remember last week I told you he called this new institution the church. We use that term all the time without thinking twice about it. But you realize that's a new term. It only occurs twice in all the Gospels, and it's the first time you see it right here. Ecclesia in Greek. E-K-K-L-E-S-I-A. Ecclesia. And what it means literally is the invited ones, or the called out ones. Jesus is establishing something new, something that had never existed before on earth, and he establishes this new institution here, he alludes to it, saying it's going to consist of people who are all united by one thing, and it's not your birth background, your father's name, your tribal affiliation. What's it going to be? It's going to be that you've been invited by the Father. You have been called out from the world. You are the ecclesia. 
into something God is creating, a mountain of people. The church is going to be called out because it's going to be separated from the world in the same way, in some sense, that Israel was to be called out from among the nations. We're separated. Do you know what separates you from the world, though? It's not who your father was or your mother was. It's your confession of Christ. That is to say this, it's what you believe and speak about Jesus. If you've been around my teaching much, you know I, I like to say this commonly. There are only two kinds of people in the world. There are those who confess Christ by faith and those who don't. That's it. From God's point of view, there's no other distinction that matters when it comes to eternal destiny. Now, there is another distinction that matters biblically, and that is whether one is Jewish or not, but not for the matter of salvation. Not for this issue. So, while we like to divide people a million ways, the Bible divides us two ways. Whether you have faith in Christ or not. That's it. And Jesus says, as he concludes this statement, that the gates of hell will not prevail, or you could say hold power over, those who share in Peter's confession, that that is, those who are in the church. Now, the term gates of hell, some Jewish scholars say that's an idiom in Hebrew, meaning it's it's a way of saying things in Hebrew that really just means death, gates of hell. But in any case, it does reference the power of death. Some would interpret it to mean that the church itself will not be defeated by Satan. The gates of hell will not prevail against the church. But friends, that makes no sense whatsoever. When you say the church today, what do you mean? How often do we have to say this to ourselves? The church is not the building. It's the people. Do you know what he just said? He didn't say the institution, the hell, the gates of hell will not prevail against the institution. Christ couldn't care less about the institution. It's about the people. The people are the institution. There's nothing else except the people that make up the institution. What are you saying? And the gates of hell will not prevail against the people. Or, as we would say it simply, he's going to build a body of people through faith alone in Christ alone, and you're going to get eternal life, and there's nothing the devil or hell can do about it. That's what he's saying. This is not an affiliation that is tenuous. This is not an an identity that has any potential to be disrupted by an enemy who wants to undo it. If the Father reveals to you who His Son is, it is prima facie evidence that He intends you to be saved. God does not do things He does not complete. He does not will for things He does not get. And to be revealing Himself to someone is an act of the will of the Father that is by necessity and intention leading to something good. And it is never wasted. And the enemy will not prevail against that work. That, my friends, is why Jesus changed Peter's name. It's not to memorialize this moment or to give him a cute nickname. It's because he was emphasizing, you've got a new identity, Peter. You need to understand that this body of people you're going to lead for a time will be moving into this new identity with you, and I want you to share their identity. No longer is your identity before God going to be based on your physical birth to a Jewish family. Instead, your identity is going to be found now through a new birth, a spiritual rebirth, through a confession of Christ, and it will join you to a new family, something that we now call the church, and it's going to be a mixture of people. You know, the word Simon, the name Simon, very Jewish name. The name Peter, not at all Jewish. Not at all Jewish, Greek. The name Saul, very, very 
Jewish. The name Paul, not Jewish. It's a Greek name. Now, when I say this to you, it's obvious that Peter's no less Jewish. You know, his family didn't go away. His history of birth did not change. But Jesus' point is that Jewishness no longer would be a meaningful distinction in this new institution. Paul says in Galatians 3.26, You are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. And verse 28, There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free man. There is neither male nor female. You are all one in Christ Jesus. Now, when you think about the words I just read out of Galatians 3, listen to the comparisons. Jew, Greek, slave, free, male, female. Let's let's go through those just briefly, starting with the last one. Are there male people in here? Are there female people in here? Did you lose that identity when you came to Christ? God forbid, right? No, but what is Paul's point? He's saying that distinction did not have any bearing on you being a son or daughter of Christ. On you having equal future in eternity in heaven. No one's going to heaven because they're a man. No one's going to heaven because they're a woman. That has no bearing is his point. Similarly, just because you're free, you don't have an advantage when it comes to the gospel than you would be if you were in jail or in some other kind of slavery. And neither are you in an advantage if, if you're a Jew or if you're Greek. It doesn't matter. It's not your, your identity that matters. It's your faith in Christ that gives you a new identity. So Peter's example of joining the church in this moment is through this confession of faith, the whole moment from when God started to when Peter responded, it becomes an example for us, a model for us, and it becomes a recipe by how God intends to build His church. One of those moments at a time. On and on and on. And then he renames Peter to make the point to Peter that you are joining something totally new that changes you also. And then he goes a step further in Peter's case. He assigns Peter a leadership role in shepherding this transition from Jew to Gentile. You know, one of the things I've noticed about serving the Lord is, whatever you don't want to do, whatever you're not good at, whatever sin or habit stands in the way, the Lord has an interesting way of putting you into a position where that becomes the thing you have to work on. You know, it's like He finds the perfect set of circumstances to expose that little weakness that you would just rather not deal with, because while it's there being exposed, you have a choice to make. Deal with it and serve Christ, or live with it and make it an impediment to serving Christ. You know, pride versus humility, in a sense. You all might know this from reading the book of Acts. If you've read it, you know that there's a moment in the book of Acts in which Peter is very reluctant to go forward with the gospel to a new group of people. We'll come to that here in a second. But that reluctance was there long before you see it appear in Acts. It started in his Jewishness from birth, that is, from the cultural influences he had from his upbringing. It's always there. It's here now. It's just not on display yet, because we haven't seen him come to this moment yet. But Jesus knew it was there. And knowing it was there, and knowing it would be an issue, and knowing that Peter needed to chart the path, blaze the trail, so that the rest of the church would get it, he puts Peter in this unique position. In verse 19, he says, Peter is going to have keys to the kingdom. And he says that whatever Peter would bind or loose on earth will have been bound or loosed in heaven. Now those are some remarkable words. And I will tell you that Protestant Christianity has struggled at times to make some sense of them. And here's why I think that's true. I think it's because we stand so opposed to the Catholic view that Peter is not the first pope and that you know the papacy is not being established here that it gives us, I think, a bit of a knee-jerk reaction to this to try to explain it away. 
rather than embrace what's actually being said here, which is that he is receiving an important leadership position, and he is doing something apparently pretty remarkable because he's connecting earth and heaven with that early role in the church. We don't know quite what that is, not from this text, but it's certainly something. You can't just brush over it. And we find the answer in Acts. That is, though Jesus doesn't explain what this means here, and neither does Matthew, if you go to the book of Acts, you find out what it meant that Peter got three keys, as it turns out, and that he turned them, and as he turned these keys, he was unlocking the kingdom of heaven. And heaven responded, as it were, to what Peter did. What am I referring to? Well, in the book of Acts, the story of Peter, which is the first third or so of that book, it centers on Peter reaching new groups with the gospel. Three times. On three separate occasions, Peter is personally involved in the outward movement of the gospel in its earliest days. The first of those moments is the one we all know best, Pentecost, in chapter 2 of Acts. That's when 3,000 or so Jewish men came to faith in the gospel at the preaching of Peter on the day of Pentecost. It was the first example we have in the Bible of mass evangelism following Christ's departure, And, not insignificantly, it was connected to Peter's preaching. It was also the first time that the Holy Spirit indwelled believers. And Paul tells us, as you remember last week from Romans, that the indwelling of the Holy Spirit in a person's body is the definition of being saved and of being part of the church. Right? The moment you're believing, you receive the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit is the one who gives you new birth, new spiritual life. He takes up residence in you as a deposit or a down payment, Paul says in Ephesians. And that deposit or down payment is proof to you that what he began, he will surely complete in you in the day of Christ Jesus. All those who are indwelled by the Holy Spirit, the Bible says, are the sons or daughters of God. They are part of the church. But we also know from reading in Acts, there are a few notable exceptions to this pattern in the very early days of the church. And by that I mean the Spirit's arrival in a particular believer or group of believers was delayed. They believed, the scriptures say, but we don't see the Holy Spirit arrive in that very moment. It arrives at a later moment. Clearly that's not the normative experience, but it was an interesting one, and we wonder why is it that way at the early point of the church? What was going on there? Those exceptions are connected to Jesus' words here to Peter. And here's how. First at Pentecost, Peter preached, men believed in the name of Jesus, and then the Holy Spirit came upon them. And at that moment, Jewish people in mass began to accept and receive Jesus as Messiah. Not just there in that moment of 3,000, but Jewish people throughout Jerusalem and then throughout Judea began receiving the truth of the gospel. And the church began to grow very quickly among Jews. We're told that in the next verses of the book of Acts. So you could say it this way, what Peter let loose at Pentecost among the Jewish people, heaven then let loose among all the Jews in Judea. It was almost as if Peter had just turned a key in that moment through his preaching, and as he did so, the gospel suddenly moved into and among the Jewish people and received a great harvest at Pentecost. And it didn't stop there, it kept moving, at least for a time. In that moment, Peter turned the first of the keys that he was given to the kingdom. And what we mean by that is the Lord used Peter to make this happen. Not because Peter was necessary or essential, but simply because the Lord elected to do this work through Peter to make a point. 
Jesus was using Peter to lead the outward movement of the early church, having him be the man on the spot to make the preaching happen, to bring about the response as God delivers the Holy Spirit in response to that. And in so doing, he's making a statement, God is moving his church through Peter. God is working to build his church. On this rock I will build my church. He's making the point that God is doing what Christ promised to do. And the demonstrative display of the Holy Spirit's arrival was intentional for the observers and for the participants, for that matter, so that everyone would get it. Something just happened. God just did something right here. You know, today if you're saved, generally speaking, you know inwardly something is happening. That's why you respond. But if I'm standing next to you in the moment, you may not say anything. I can tell you from seeing this happen, you don't levitate, you don't glow. You know, fire doesn't come out of your eyes. Um, Things don't happen like that. Why? Because it's not necessary. The church is established. The word is established. God does not need to keep putting on a show for us to tell us that he's here. And that's why water baptism is so important for us individually, because that is the way we communicate formally to the world of our belief. That's what God has given it to us for, as a public opportunity to uh, witness to what has happened inwardly. But in the earliest days of the church, we don't have any of this precedent. We don't have any of this history. No one's done this before. You can't work into something so established without starting it somewhere. And the start for the church is Pentecost. And the establishment of the church needed to be demonstrative so that there was recognition of it. And he says these words to Peter in advance of it so that we would have the script, we would understand what's happening. That's the first key. And friends, the second and third keys work similarly. The second key was turned in Acts chapter 8. That's the scene in which Philip goes down to Samaria. And that was as a result of persecution in Jerusalem. As he goes down there to preach, now I say down because that's the Jewish nomenclature. Jerusalem's a high point, and anywhere you travel away from Jerusalem, you're said to be going down, no matter whether you go north or south. Samaria, in this case, is north, so we're going north of Jerusalem into an area that has historically, at least for the preceding multiple centuries, been a place of great tension uh, for Jews and Samaritans. Samaritans hated Jews, Jews hated Samaritans. And you may remember the scene when Jesus is trying to walk through Samaria and he can't find a place to stay overnight. So his disciples say, oh, would you like us to call down fire from heaven upon these people for not letting you stay somewhere? You know, it just shows their eagerness to do something to the Samaritans. So Samaritans live not far from Jerusalem and Philip goes to Samaria in chapter 8. And when he goes, he begins to preach. He does signs and wonders as God appoints. And as he does, there is a a big response to the gospel. People believed in the gospel. But yet it says very specifically in chapter 8, the Holy Spirit did not come to them at that time. And then word gets back to Jerusalem and Peter hears about this movement of God among the Samaritans. And he's, he's struck by that. You have to put yourself in Peter's position as best you can. Think about his attitude for a minute. Everything he's seen up until chapter 8 of Acts confirms for him the Jewish storyline. God made promises to Israel. He brought them prophets. He brought them patriarchs. He brought them the Messiah. The Messiah came. He died. Oh, but now we understand why he needed to die. So that was actually part of the script as well. And then he preached the gospel to the Jews. The Jews responded. The church starts to spread. It looks like the whole nation of Israel is going to become Christian before long. And then Jesus will come back and it's all nice and tidy. And then Philip's word gets back. Uh, Peter, we got, um, yeah, we got Samaritans believing. 
And that Peter's like, mm, that can't be right. God doesn't favor those people. This is a new thing. You have to understand, and you read between the lines in uh, chapter 8 of Acts, Peter's not going down there like, oh great, let's get some of these Samaritans. He's going down there like, i got to check this out. There is something going on down there that ain't right. We're going we're gonna to double check the math on this. He shows up in Samaria and he sees what's going on for what it is. He recognizes the miracle of it. He sees the confessions of faith. He sees Philip's work within the people to do miracles and so on. And then as he begins to lay on hands with the people who are preaching the or receiving the word, what happens? The Spirit of God shows up. And they have a mini Pentecost. And as that moment occurs, here's what we read in Acts chapter 8. When the apostles in Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent them Peter and John, who came down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. Now, why would he pray for them to receive the Holy Spirit? Well, because in fairness, he's giving an opportunity for God to show himself here. Is this truly a work of the Spirit or not, Father? Is this truly a group of people you are receiving, or is this a charade? You can tell me definitively, give them the Holy Spirit, and I'll know which is true. Verse 16 says, For he had not yet fallen upon any of them. They had simply been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Verse 17, Then they began laying hands on them, and they were receiving the Holy Spirit. So Samaritans, friends, are not Jews. And as a result, this is a new work of God. But here's the thing. They're not Gentiles either. Not from the Jewish point of view. That is, they existed in the Jewish way of thinking somewhere between Jew and Gentile. Because of their their past. And so... The Lord made the Samaritans a second stop along the gospel's outward journey to the rest of the world. Not because Samaritans deserve some special place in the, you know, in the pantheon of humanity. It's simply that the Jews needed to see that the Samaritans were going to be included. Otherwise, I think the Jews would have never considered it a possibility. They would have considered Gentile converts before they would have considered Samaritan converts. So God takes a little stop along the path just for Samaria to make clear, yep, they're included too. Second key has been turned. After that, you look at John chapter 4, the woman at the well. After she's brought to faith, there's a a report there about how she brings a whole town to faith. Well, the same is happening after Philip's experience in Samaria. Finally, Peter's called to turn a third key to open the church to Gentiles. Now, if you remember, as I mentioned earlier in the story of Acts, there's a moment in chapter 10 where Peter is being asked to go see a Gentile. This is the first time that there's going to be any of the apostles actively proselytizing to a Greek, to a Gentile. First time. First Greek being told the gospel, formally. And what's Peter's response? Well, God knew what it would be, so he sends him a dream. Remember this? Sends him a dream. And in the dream, Peter is told to eat a bunch of meat that was unkosher, you know, not supposed to be eaten by kosher Jews. And Peter refuses to do it because he says, I've never eaten that stuff. And he was commanded by God in the dream to eat it. Why? Because he wanted Peter to get over himself. Get over your Jewishness. You're not Jewish anymore. Not in the sense of the law. Not in the sense of custom. Not in the sense of religious piety. You're not that anymore. It's served its purpose in Christ. Now you don't worry about that anymore. And neither do you worry about who's clean or unclean individually. And so as he wakes up from this dream realizing what he is to do... He's persuaded to go to Cornelius, the centurion. And when he gets there, 
Peter talks to him about the gospel, and both Cornelius and his family receive it, and they are all baptized, and they all receive the Holy Spirit. Now, here's a question for you. Why did God work so hard to get Peter to go to Cornelius? Couldn't someone else have done the job? No. Peter had the key. You have Jews in the kingdom of God at that point. Samaritans, check. In the kingdom of God, key turned. Who's missing? Oh, only the rest of the world. All Gentiles. And Peter's got a key that he's going to turn one way or another because God has said, you're the guy to do it. Now, do you understand why he got picked? Because he didn't want to do it. Because in his heart, that's not where God was going. God said, you're the perfect guy to do this job. I need you to go turn some keys. Heaven would let the gospel loose, so to speak, when Peter opened the door by his preaching, because that's how God appointed it to happen. And so it fell on Peter to turn that key when he preached to Cornelius. And as a result, here's what we read in Acts 10.44. When Peter was still speaking these words, the Holy Spirit fell upon all those who were listening to the message. All the circumcised believers who came with Peter were amazed because of the gift of the Holy Spirit being poured out on the Gentiles also. They were hearing them speak with tongues and exalting God. And Peter answered, Surely no one can refuse the water for these to be baptized who have received the Holy Spirit, just as we did, can he? There's Peter's turning moment. That's when he realized there is no one on earth who's out of reach for the gospel as Jesus appointed it. And after this moment, not coincidentally, Peter disappears from the pages of Acts. Why? He turned his three keys. Now it's time for the gospel to move. It's been loosed. And Peter's done his job. The delayed arrival of the Spirit in those three circumstances was testimony to the apostles, to us, to the whole church, that this is the Lord doing as he promised, moving the gospel outward to any who would believe, building upon the rock of Peter's example through that faith and confession moment over and over again, and not just doing it among the Jewish people, but doing it for everyone. Now, as I opened our teaching last week, I mentioned that to prepare these men for ministry, he had to teach them these two basic lessons, right? First, he, they had to understand Jesus was God, that he was Messiah, and that is that his identity is central to our salvation, to the message of the church. So don't ever let somebody try to get you into one of these little arguments or discussions in which they try to agree with you without actually agreeing with you. That is, they'll say that Jesus was a, a good man, a good teacher, maybe even a prophet or, or something, but anything less than saying he was God. That's someone just playing around. I mean, unless you're willing to go to that last step, none of those other steps matter. Two kinds of people in the world. Only the Son of God, only that He is God in the form of man, only that He is the only name under heaven by which men may be saved, only that moves someone's heart. Everything else is just playing a game. But the second thing Jesus said they needed to understand was that the mission of the church is fundamentally about spreading that confession. Going outward with that confession. That it is building something based on Peter's example. Now you and I know this. I know you do. It's not like this is a surprising thing for me to say. But do you realize how often in the body, collectively, around the world that is, how often we forget this? And we may not forget it up here, but we forget it in our actions or in our priorities. And by that I mean this. On the one hand, the church is not a secret society. It is not a special club limited to just special people, you know, people that we like or people who are worthy to, you know, understand the things we understand, any of that nonsense. But neither is it an open community that anyone can simply join by just showing up. Just attending makes you a Christian. Just being here every week 
and you're just as, we love you as much as anyone else. Well, we do love you, but we love you so much we don't want you to stay ignorant of the gospel. You see the difference? And by that I mean, if we want to do the mission of the church, it means we want people's hearts to be pushed. Ultimately to salvation by faith in Christ, yes. But it is better that they leave this place out of a discomfort for lack of agreement with us about the gospel than it is that we create a kind of environment here where you can believe whatever you want and still feel comfortable. The latter example makes us feel better. The former example actually changes things, actually does the mission of the church. It actually pleases Christ. So an institution that Jesus himself builds through the testimony of the church, starting with Peter's example, that's the kind of community that he wants us to sustain. And today, the doors that Peter opened are wide open. They're open. You don't have to worry about closing or opening or keys or any such thing right now. The day is called today, the writer of Hebrews says, that anyone who believes can be saved, and there's no limitation on that with respect to identity. We don't know who God is working in, but we can certainly go to everyone and look for God's work. That's our mission. And nothing else we do in this body can take its place. Period. Nothing. Now, we can do other things to affect that outcome. That is, we can work through various means of ministry to reach people with the gospel. But don't ever get those two things mixed up. You can never allow the enemy to entice you into following after some other mission or substitute some other good work and make you think that that's equivalent. Because if you let him do that, he will do that. He has found timeless ways all over the world to invite people to trade the mission of the church in its purpose of evangelism for other seemingly good missions. You know, feeding hungry people is commendable, yes. And it can be helpful to the mission of the church if it leads to opportunities to share the gospel with those hungry people. Building houses for the homeless, uh, sheltering battered people, women, abused women, taking care of orphans, uh, opposing immoral government policies. All of those things are worthwhile crusades if they lead to opportunities to save souls. That's it. I mean, if those two dots don't get connected, the first dot was worthless. Why do I say it's worthless? Because unsaved people with full bellies end up in the same place as hungry unbelievers. And unbelievers living in nice houses end up in the same place as unbelievers living on the streets. And unbelievers with foster parents and unbelievers with government aid and those who live morally good lives because we've told them they need to lead morally good lives, they all still end up in hell if they don't know Christ. The mission of the church is keeping people from the power of the gates of hell. That's the mission. And only the commitment of the church to that mission is standing between the enemy and his goals. Now clearly the Lord is going to do his will. I'm not trying to say that it all rests on our shoulders and our wisdom and intellect and not any of that. I'm talking about whether you're participating with Christ or he's doing it without you. That's all I'm saying. Jesus will build his church, but he does it on the model Peter gave us. And if you want evidence of how serious he is about us following his model and not inventing our own, just look at one more verse as we finish tonight. Verse 20, he warns the disciples there. Verse 20, then he warned the disciples they should tell no one that he was the Christ. Now, you didn't see that coming, did you? He just told the disciples, yeah, what Peter said, that's true. He confirmed his testimony about being the Messiah. I mean, if that group had, had any doubt at all about who Jesus was, you know, Jesus just cleared that up. And then immediately he says, and I'm going to build the church upon this very good example right here. 
Peter, you're now Peter. You're no longer Simon. And then he says, by the way, guys, don't tell anybody I said any of this. All right. You You and I know why he's saying this now based on prior teaching in here. That is that we know that the kingdom offer had been taken off the table for Israel because of what happened in chapter 12. And so there was no reason to broadcast the news of Messiah to that nation in that day at that point. Their conversion, Israel's conversion, awaits a later day. So that's why he withholds that knowledge. But there's a second reason for this command right here. Because Jesus is awaiting for the arrival of the church at Pentecost. So until Peter turns the keys, heaven's not going to let loose the gospel. So in a kind of ironic footnote, he's simply saying, don't go out there and try doing this on your own. Wait till I tell you it's time to go do this. This is my church. I'm building it. Don't go out doing this in your own power. Now, there were specific reasons for the timing of this at that moment, yes. But it's a general statement as well for us. And so what I'm saying to you is this. You might assume that any time you want to share the gospel and any method you might dream up for how to do that is equally pleasing to Christ. And certainly Paul says at one point in Philippians that any preaching of Christ is good, even if the motives for doing it are bad. But what Paul says there is simply that preaching Christ is good regardless of why you do it. He's not saying that how you do it is a free-for-all. He's saying the motive can be whatever it is. The method, though, is another issue. That is, you have to be aware of having right motives, but wrong methods. That's a concern. So in Jesus' day, it would have been wrong for them to run out of that moment and start spreading the news among Israel that Jesus was their Messiah because Jesus has already told them, that's not where this is going right now. And today, there are wrong ways we can run out of this room and seek to serve the gospel. And by wrong, I mean some of the things I mentioned earlier. We put our energy behind feeding people, caring for felt needs, doing things that are commendable in and of themselves, but we stop short of turning those things to the sake of the gospel, to the mission of the church. Because you know what? Feeding people, that's actually pretty easy. And it doesn't ask much of you. Honestly, it's not that hard. Which is why you should do it, I guess. But asking someone to believe in Jesus at the expense of their soul, that's a hard conversation and it doesn't always go well. So we often avoid that and do the easy things and stop there. That's not the mission. So there are other institutions that will work to feed and clothe and care and so on, and we'll do that too from time to time. But friends, there is no one else out there with a message that has the power to defeat the gates of hell. So if we don't do it, who's going to do it? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, charge us tonight, Father, each of us, to be an ambassador to speak your word, to share the truth, and to do it, Father, in a kind and caring way, considerate of those that we speak to, and and yet at the same time, Father, committed to the mission of the church. We learn a lot in here, Father, and it is a blessing every time. But it is knowledge for the purpose of action. So uh, let us think, Father, about how we can act. Help us understand. Understand where you want us to go next. Point us in that direction. Each in our own way, speaking to those around us in our walk of life, helping us to get bold about it, be clear about it, accepting the rejection that might come, and moving forward to the next opportunity. Just being who you've called us to be, Father. We pray for opportunities this week. We pray for the blessing of seeing responses this week, Father. And we... We pray that uh, with 
one moment of, of breakthrough, you'd encourage us to try it ten times harder the next time. For these things, Father, we're thankful. The chance to serve a living God who has saved us, not for our own sake, but by his love and mercy. And we ask, Father, you give us the privilege to find someone else who might receive the same grace through our hands. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.